This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Hard Anodized Sprockets, up to 66% lighter than steel sprockets. Round eight is in the books and MotoGP now gets ready for a five-week summer break before the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. The Dutch TT saw Paco Bagnaia and Marco Bezzecchi split the honours in the MotoGP class, while Jake Dixon claimed the first Grand Prix victory in the Moto2 class, and Jaime Masia was able to win for the first time in Moto3 this season. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. For chains, sprockets and handlebar mounts, check out renthal.com. My name is Steve English, and thankfully I'm joined by an group of esteemed MotoGP journalists, the best in the business, David Emmett, Adam Wheeler and Neil Morrison. And for Asim, we're going to go to our, our marks out of 10 for the Dutch TT. Adam, I'm going to come to you straight off the bat for, for you. What was what was your rating for this race? Um, well, considering I wasn't there, Steve, I still I'm going to peg it at an eight because the, like Dave said, the weather looked amazing. The crowd looked amazing. Fantastic racetrack. You really get an appreciation for how wonderful Assen is when you just look at the way the motorcycles handle. So, uh, okay. I mean, the racing was very close rather than being uh, a classic, but yeah, no, I thought it was a pretty good Grand Prix and it's been a fantastic triple, you know, increased crowds in Mugello capacity crowd in germany and again you know Aston never seems to let you down when it comes to uh, enthusiasm for motor gp david what about you home round and uh, able to ride your bike to it so i'd say that's a 10 out of 10 uh, well yeah that was but the race was a five and a half out of 10 because i would uh, really like to see them bring back overtaking neil what about you what was your mark out of 10 for the dutch tt uh, for the tt as a whole it would have to be a nine as i'd said great weather great crowds great atmosphere two really good races on sunday uh with model three and model two uh providing plenty of thrills but yeah the model gp race was a weird one in that two seconds covered five riders for the the last part of the race but at no point was there any great great excitement um and it was a very modern model gp race in that you had all these guys super close but yeah no one close enough to to overtake um and basically Riders were relying on the, the the person ahead to make a mistake to try and gain an advantage or gain a place. So, yeah, that was um, that was slightly disappointing, a bit uh, a bit concerning, a bit in line with what we've seen in MotoGP at certain tracks in uh, recent times. But um, as a whole, yeah, solid nine. Adam, what was your moment of the weekend? The the one thing that you kind of saw that really uh, stood out in your mind. Just from a narrative point of view, Steve, I think when Mark Marquez ran into the back of Inea Bastianini on Saturday. Uh, it was my reaction, at least anyway, was utter disbelief. I just thought, how has Marquez done this again? Then I started to think, how many riders has he had contact with already in the first eight rounds of this championship? And he's only done six of those Grand Prix or five. Uh, I just, you know, I thought, what is going on at the moment? There's just a, a big black cloud or a whirlwind around this guy where he just cannot avoid scrapes or getting into situations where he can potentially harm himself. I mean... It was interesting afterwards that he said he went to Bastianini's motorhome to, to kind of apologize. Uh, he said, of course, it's at his fault. It's like being on the road. The guy who's behind, you know, the person who's behind gets involved in an accident. Usually they're the one to blame. But I just thought it was completely um, symbolic of, of, you know, the situation Honda find themselves in where their star racer is hurt. He's demoralized. Uh, he, he's looking ragged and risky. He's having to get toes. He has to take chances. Um, you know, it could have been a bigger disaster than it was. 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen him do something like that a thousand times where he'll slow up behind someone and, you know, just not hit anyone. And it really is quite sort of almost symbolic uh, that this one time when he's at his deepest point, he runs into the back of uh, uh, someone. That's, it's just really he's on a real roll of just well of terrible luck and you may want to discuss uh how much uh he is contributing to that bad luck himself but certainly you know everything is going wrong for him right now yeah that's very much the case and it was unfortunate to see mark obviously ruled out one thing about that because obviously there was a lot of talk on twitter about how riders get declared on fish and one of the articles i wrote years ago or I can't remember who it was, but it was about the difference between being injured and being hurt. Mark was hurt at the start of the weekend because he was still able to ride. He was still able to push himself through. But just the sheer volume of riding that you have to do over a weekend then forces you from being hurt to being injured and having to rule yourself out. So while you can be fit at the start of a weekend, there's no guarantee you're going to be fit by the end of it whenever you're carrying knocks. Yeah, the other thing is in that uh, incident... Um, because he said on Sunday that, uh, Saturday night he hadn't been able to sleep, uh, and he woke up and he found out that he had a, that the fracture in his rib had actually moved by two millimeters. So, you know, it, it's not, con- it's not surprising that he could manage to get through Sunday or Saturday, um, but was a lot worse on Sunday. You know, like he, he literally couldn't ride on Sunday. Right, we've heard enough from you, David. We're going to go to Neil for his <laughs> moment of the weekend now. It has to be the last lap of the Moto3 race, Steve, just because it was uh, bedlam. Ten riders fighting for the victory up until the final lap. And um, I think on the six preceding laps before the last, into the Ramsook really was one of those things where you were just looking, watching through your watching through your fingers, waiting for something quite scary, maybe quite dangerous to happen. Lots of dangerous things happened. But somehow the uh, ten riders in that league group managed to finish. Um, I thought the final sector of the final lap was amazing we had the lead change times I think twice between uh, Sasaki and Masia Masia managing to pull off the victory and then uh, David Munoz pushing Romano Fanati off track allowing um, guy Dennis Onju to come from behind into third um, and it just was a brilliant Moto3 race um, and uh, yeah right on the ragged edge of, of what you know is, is on the limit but um, somehow they managed just to just to all make it through. So I thought that was pretty spectacular. Yeah, and obviously now, Neil, as well, the championship gap now down to 16 points between Halgado and Masia closes it up after the first, well, half the season, let's call it what it is, up to this date, up before the summer break. We've seen Halgado pretty much peerless and made a mistake on Sunday. Masia is able to capitalise on it. He's always been a bit inconsistent. He's always been a boomer bust rider, Masia. But on his good days, he's still very special. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And this is probably the best run of his career that he's been on. Clearly, the Honda isn't the best bike in the grid. But um, yeah, finally, we saw a little chink in Holgado's armour. And um, both him, both Masia and Sasaki now look like they could be uh, real challenges in the championship. Anyone watching us on YouTube will obviously know that David's been chomping at the bit to get back in and uh, give us his moment of the weekend. Uh, well, my moment of the weekend was um, the, the, the last lap. 
Brad Binder, uh, uh, it was uh, Brad Binder, Alicia Spargo, and Jorge Martin coming out the second roll and just cutting across because the, the the exit of that corner sort of snakes. It's not straight. Any other track, you would have a straight line. This is not a straight line. It sort of like cuts back in and then cuts back out again. So you've had this really strange curb. And both um, uh, Brad Binder and Jorge Martin cut across the green there just by a little bit, but you know enough for it to be uh, measured and so um, that was what cost Brad Binder the uh, third place um, he was forced to drop a position behind uh, Alicia Spargaro for the second race in a row or well you know because he did exactly the same thing happened had happened to him in uh, in the sprint race on Saturday and then uh, there was a lot of complaining afterwards that Jorge Martin hadn't been given a uh, a, a penalty um, because he did exactly the same thing but the thing is the, the the rule is that you get a penalty only if it's going to affect the outcome of the race because whether Martin cut across that green or not it made no difference the person with the rider behind him was ten and a half seconds behind uh, made no point trying to you know drop it make him drop a position you could have given him a three se- the three second penalty and again it would have made zero difference to the outcome it was very very harsh on Binder um, because they were tiny little infractions but uh, yeah, that's that, that. Those are the rules. Binder himself was uh, understandably frustrated, but just held his end up and said, "You know, my fault." He apologised to the team. He apologised to his uh, uh, to, to KTM for basically costing them two fact uh, two podiums. I, I know we might come up to li- on limits later on on the podcast, but two things very quickly. One, what kind of possible advantage does Binder get from you know? I'd understand if he ran two meters wide. And Aspargaro maybe lost the chance to have an overtaking position onto the onto the next section of the track. Okay, but it wasn't. And secondly, I don't really understand sort of the interpretation of the rule there. Um, maybe these things need to be revised because you know you end up with a classification coming across the line, and it's just the the way that a sport is changed outside of sporting context, if you know what I mean. Which is never great, is it? When you see uh, the narrative of, of an event change because of uh, a rule yeah i mean like did brad binder gain any advantage not particularly uh the advantage if he had any was that um he could have got better drive out that corner by uh, by just clipping the green now the amount by which he clipped the green is zero um but that's or well not zero zero point one probably or something whatever you want to however you want to measure it um but that's what the rules say. I mean, it, the, the rules are very clear. You you have to stay within track limits, and he didn't stay without track limits, and potentially he uh, he gained an advantage for uh, from it. Um, I, I completely agree. It does. It, it is a, always a bad look for a sport when uh, the order in which the riders cross the line. Uh, or the finishers cross the finish line is then rearranged uh, due to all sorts of you know infractions and arguments and and rules and all the rest of it. So yeah, it's a bad look for the sport. Uh, I mean, technically, it was absolutely the right decision, I think, in both cases. But um, yeah, it just doesn't look very good. It's it's just and it's really really frustrating. Yeah, I think it was Jorge Martin actually in his debrief on Sunday said that when you're that close to a rider, you can't actually see that well if you're clipping the green or not, uh, because obviously you're right, right, right on the edge. I mean, maybe that's not Binder's case because he had clear track ahead of him. But, you know, it's, it's, it must be much more difficult 
then you realize. But the other thing as well is this is why stewards need to be more transparent. Say, listen, we've reviewed this angle, we've reviewed this footage, explain what you've done, which could take, what, 10 minutes after a race. And then I think people won't be so, well, what are they watching and what have they seen that we haven't seen? And, and you know, this kind of uh, level of general confusion. There was a big crash the last corner, Aston 2015. Jack Miller, I think, took out two riders. That afternoon, we went down, it was myself, David and Neil, Pete McLaren from Crash as well. And we sat there with Mike Webb for a coffee for Mike to explain his decision. Uh, Sepang 2015 uh, ruined everything because it was Sepang 2015 where we the, basically those chats stopped with Mike Webb because we used to be able to just go in and sort of like say, so what's the crack? You know, why this, why that? And you'd get a, you'd get a really good, clearer um uh, explanation and then you'd understand their point of view you might not necessarily agree 100 uh, percent with it but it was logical and it was well well built upon it's well founded now we get zero so we're just left to you know make things up to try to you know try to sort of uh, uh, reason backwards what their arguments were um, and um, it's very very frustrating and i've basically just given up yeah, we get to piece everything together and then make a podcast about it. We're going to move on from our moments <laughs> of the weekend to our big talking points from the weekend. So obviously we saw Ducati win both races. We saw Bezeki in incredible form Friday and Saturday. Pekka turns it around on Sunday. Neil, let's come to you. What was your big... Yeah, it was you. Sorry, Neil. Yeah, Neil, let's come to you. What was your big talking point from the weekend? Well, I guess it was just, uh, it was on the surface, it looked like further Ducati domination. Um, we had Ducati's first and second in, in both the sprint and the, the feature race on Sunday. We had them, uh, looking really good in, in qualifying again. Um, you know, Asin in years gone by was a pretty difficult track for Ducati, but obviously they broke that duck in 2022 with Banyaya and uh, Bezeki finishing first and second. Um, and yeah, just basically, on the surface, it might look like this is this is pretty bad for the other competitors, for the other manufacturers, because they're cleaning up. And you look at the points scored in the first eight races. I mean, Ducati has won at least one race in every round. Um, they've taken the, uh, the sprint and Sunday race double. Um, I think at five of the, the eight rounds that we've had so far this year, they've just been immense in qualifying, and they do look they do look peerless. They're 132 points ahead of KTM in the uh, the constructors' championship. But I think saying that there were a few signs from both Brad Binder and Alessia Spargro that um, you know all is not completely lost for KTM nor Aprilia. Um, and we certainly saw this weekend Binder. Um, a lot better than maybe he had anticipated. He started slowly on Friday, but so nearly got the podium um, on on Saturday, and then again on Sunday when he had taken that uh, risk with the uh, the kind of the soft rear tire. A lot of the other leading guys had gone with the medium rear. Um, so from what I could see on Sunday, and listening to what Brad was saying after the race, listening to what Alice was saying, who who did finish third, of course, with a a broken front wing. Um, you know, there is there is a bit of reason for hope from for both KTM and Aprilia. Um and Binder is in particular was saying that he's been having massive issues in the first seven rounds with uh, front locking when he's kind of doing straight line breaking. His team managed to find some kind of cure for that here. And um he seemed really buoyed by his weekend despite the disappointments of missing out on the podium. Um and he was looking ahead at the ten rounds to come, thinking like, you know what, I think we've made a pretty significant breakthrough and maybe uh this will be the start of um of us 
being a bit closer to the front and you look at where he finished off I mean he was just uh, like super close I mean we talked about no overtaking towards the end but yeah 1.5 seconds off at the track when um, you know it seemed that the margin was, was much bigger um, you know I think KTM uh, have taken a step and, and look as though that they could figure more towards the the, the very front in, in the second half of the year I like um, your optimism, Neil, but I mean, Binder is the only ride, non-Ducati rider in the top six of the championship and he's 80 points off. I really think he needs to get a couple of, he needs a streak of, you know, podium finishes at least, which he could have done at Assen just to get into the championship fight. But uh, it was interesting also hearing some of the questions that Marco Bezzecchi was taking um, in the weekend about uh, the potential performance difference between the 23 bike and the 22 i wonder if you know we might see bagnaya martin maybe this was in the in the wake of germany when we saw martin and bagnaya you know arguably operating at a different level compared to the the rest of the satellite bikes uh, whether you know ducati will start to pull ahead you know as some kind of incremental changes come on the 23 there's most of each year that's maybe something to look out for but i mean how as, as much as Bezeki was impressive, how brilliant was Bagnaya there? I mean, he was a joy to watch. I have to say, uh, just to go back to one thing Neil said, I think it's really impressive the work that KTM have done because they've basically got what had been the classic Ducati bike of something that goes really good in a straight line, stops really well. And they've been able to maximise that a little bit more. They've done a good job with that, but they need to make the next step. And it's tough to make that next step. You look at Aprilia and Assen's the best track of the year probably for Maverick and for Alesh, and it still wasn't quite where they needed it to be. But just to to mention one thing about what you were saying there about uh, Bezeki and Ducati as well. What was interesting was the data share that you get from Ducati basically meant that Pekka was able to make the step overnight, and that's where you were able to get the most out of the potential from the twenty three bike as much as anything else. And that's one of those areas that, as they get closer and closer in the title fight, do you really? you want to be able to share all that information when you're the independent team versus the factory team but Neil you wanted to jump in yeah no I just I mean it was another example of of Banyaya showing his best on on Sunday um like how many times this year have we seen him throwing his toys out of the pram during one of the practice sessions on on Friday and you think oh this looks like this could be a, a bit of a bit of a, a kind of a pothole that he's currently found himself in um but obviously it does take him a little bit of time to get up to speed and with the the, the, the ability to share all the, the kind of data between the different Ducati riders to see what the other guys are doing, he is able to work on things, work on himself um, and he always seems to have the best package that he could possibly have for Sunday's race. Um, we saw it at the Saxon Ring, made a huge step from the sprint to, to, to Sunday. Again, we saw it here, you know, Dave was saying on our Saturday notes show that Bezeki was peerless and there was no chance that anyone had to catch him in the main race. Well, Banyaya showed that basically get out front, put Binder in second as a blocker between himself and Bezeki and, um, you know, eke out just a, a kind of decisive second, second and a half. And, and that was enough. So, um, you know, tactically, he, he, he has it down at the moment. Yeah, that's the thing about uh, 
Banyaya is he gets better and better throughout the weekend. And it's not just at this track, it's at every single track. Uh, like he's made a couple of mistakes so far, but you know, that, that's it. Like his, his mistakes have been crashing out. He hasn't had a bad weekend where he's just not been able to be competitive. You know, he, he's always been there or there, thereabouts. To me, the bigger thing is, I mean, we saw Alicia Spargo have a really good race because, uh, you know, the, the track suited Aprilia. We also saw Quattro on the podium, or well, yes, inherit a podium from Brad, Brad Binder because the track suited the Yamaha. Uh, you know, it, it didn't punish the Yamaha's weaknesses. Um, the KTM, KTM found a little bit. KTM have been good at some tracks, uh, less so at others. The trouble is, the Ducati, there are no Ducati tracks anymore because every single track on the calendar is a Ducati track. You know, the bike does everything absolutely everything you know it stops it turns um it's uh it's good enough in long corners it's really good in slow corners it's really good coming out of slow corners i mean that that um is really where the riders are, are, are strong i mean brad binder was saying you know like coming out of the slow corners that was where he was really losing to the uh to to the ducatis uh and binder was absolutely slaughtering um fabio quattro out of the hairpin and out of the last corner so you can imagine what the ducatis are doing the ducati is quite clearly the best bike on the grid by a significant margin ktm have made a really big step and they've done really well to get closer the aprilia is you know good in some places um even the Yamaha, when everything, when everything aligns, if they're exactly the right track, they can be very competitive. Um, uh, I mean, you know, basically the, the Honda is the only bad bike, uh, uh, left on the grid, but the, the, the Ducati is so well. If you look at, yeah, if you look at the, the, the manufacturer or the manufacturer's track, uh, uh, standings, uh, f- uh, yeah, five races, the last four races in a row, um, they've won both, um, uh, they've won both sprint race and, and, and Grand Prix. It, it's getting it's getting very very ominous yeah i have to say i'm quite loath to really read too much into the form for aprilia yamaha this weekend just because aston's such a track where the rider makes a big difference and that's the case like obviously for me most of my working experience is in superbikes now but it's the same in superbikes as it is in moto gp the bike never really feels like it's made for a track like aston because it's such a it's such a outlier compared to everywhere else we go tonight so many fast corners the end of the lap section that the bike always feels bad at the start of the weekend and then the rider finds their confidence and suddenly they find a lot of lap time just through those fast corners at the end of the lap so while you know this weekend showed that the Aprilia and you mentioned the Yamaha there as well was working well but the big thing with that is when you've got Fabio on the bike and he's feeling confident it's going to work well around a track like Aston it'll work well at some other places as well but when we go to some of the slower, when we go to Misano or some of those slower tracks, how is it going to work in those situations? That was going to be quite interesting. Yeah, just on um, uh, on that about tracks. I mean, you know, the, the most extreme example of that is is Phillip Island, where genuinely it doesn't really matter what bike you're on. Uh, it, it really is. It's it's everything is about the rider at Phillip Island. Um, it's about uh, you know, it's about their ability to to get the most out of the bike and to override the bike uh, within certain limits. We've seen. Uh, riders on terrible bikes and riders on fantastic bikes uh, win there and it's always very very close uh you know we'll go to austria we'll go to uh, thailand um and it'll be just about you know the 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 performance of the bike so i think um 
the, the contrast there. But like I say, to me, the big thing is Ducati is strong absolutely everywhere. Well, let's take a quick break of the Podcast podcast. When we come back, we're going to talk about the the form for Honda, the story around Mark Marquez, and plenty more from the Dutch CT. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. We're looking back at the Dutch TT from Assen. And David, it's time for your big talking point from Assen. Uh, well, this sort of runs on naturally from our last talking point, which is, you know, like Ducati is clearly the best bike on the grid. Uh, and the Japanese bikes are really, really in trouble. I mean, they're in massive trouble. Um, I wrote a piece for this for Adam for On Track Off Road because I dug up this old uh, quote from uh, from Soichiro Honda where he basically says, you know, they went racing in 1954, the beginning of 1954 in Brazil, expecting to do quite well. Uh, and they basically got their asses handed to them by the, uh, by the Italian and by the European manufacturers. Um, and so Chiro Honda said, you know, he had this false sense of pride and idea that, that, you know, Japan was leading the world in engineering and the, the, the results were showing that this was very much not the case. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. You know, the, the uh, Ducati are leading and the two Japanese factories, you know, the, the Japanese factories, um, won every championship bar two from 1976 through to, uh, uh, 2022. It was only 2007 and 2022 that we saw an Aprilian, uh, uh sorry, uh, a European manufacturer, an Aprilian, an Aprilian, yes, that's right. Someone who works for an Aprilia. No, no, no. Um, that we saw European manufacturers actually win championships, and both times it was the Ducati. Um, we've seen the massive change in the way that the bikes have changed. We've also seen really a really big change in the way that the European manufacturers work. They're much more willing to take risks. They're much more willing to turn up at a racetrack with parts where they're not sure whether it's going to work or not and spend, you know, like Friday morning giving it a go, you know, waiting to see if it will work or not. Um, we've also heard the riders from European manufacturers, you know, uh, we heard it with KTM a couple of years ago that they were complaining that, you know, they seem to go to every single track and they'd always have new parts and it was really disrupting their ability to actually build the weekend um but if you look at where they are now you can see that they they have learned a lot of lessons that was very useful they got a lot of data from from actually doing that um whereas if you look at uh, the the japanese manufacturers the japanese manufacturers will only bring something which they're 100 percent certain will work um it is likely to be an improvement they will they fear um the bike breaking they fear something going terribly wrong so they don't do it and we i mean this i think this for honda was the absolute nadir it was the bottom of the barrel pretty much with uh two of their permanent riders out um uh, obviously alex rins breaking his leg in Mugello. Uh, joan mir still absent after uh damaging damaging his uh, uh his thumb or his, his hand um, at Mugello, uh, we saw, you know, we, we have Ika Likuona in as a replacement rider. 
Um, we and yet there was only one Repsol Honda. Like there were no Repsol Hondas on the grid in Saxon Ring uh, for the Grand Prix. There was only one Repsol Honda on the grid for the uh, Dutch TT, and that was Ikelekawona, the the replacement rider. Um, and Stefan Bradl was saying, you know, the bike is. We, you can't rely on it. You, you, you can't trust it. Marcus's massive crash in, in the warm up in the Saxon ring was big, because Takanakagama was saying he didn't do anything. He wasn't pushing, didn't do anything unusual. The bike just let go and, and, and flung him off. And this is the big problem for uh, the, the Japanese manufacturers that, that they need to be, find a way to address this. Yeah, I think um, what you were saying there, Dave, about the Japanese manufacturers taking slow or a long time to react was very apparent. Stefan Bradl was doing some testing at Mizano just before Assen, um, and all he had to test was electronic settings. Now, after what happened to Mark at the Saxon Ring, that turned out to be quite useful because um, it seemed as though um, his big warm-up crash maybe had something to do with uh, the electronics. Um, but considering the situation that Honda is in, you would expect him to have something more to test, some new parts to test, and that could uh, bring them out of this mire. And, um, you know, I think we were all expecting Honda to be in a, a pretty rubbish situation in Assen after, you know, the travails in, in Germany. But to see Yamaha struggling as badly as they did on the Sunday um, was, was also quite striking. Not entirely surprising because their season's been desperate so far, really poor and Former Yamaha tracks have been awful for them um, in the, the kind of the, the seven rounds prior to, to Assen. But, um, you know, to see Quattararo struggle so badly, he, yes, he got a bad start, but uh, it was clear that they were really struggling with the lack of grip on Sunday, the higher temperatures, the, the Dunlop rubber down from the Moto 2 race prior. And, um, you know, Franco Morbidelli said he basically just had to ride home and accept a, a safe finish. He was 29 seconds off the victor, which is a million miles away. Um, you know, and Quattuaro obviously crashed out uh, at high, high speed trying to recover positions. So, um, yes, uh, pretty much echo what you were saying. It's, it's not a good situation and it's difficult to see them finding a way back this year. Well, Quattuaro had the objective of trying to qualify on the first two rows of the grid, which he did. And it's, I think it seems kind of desperate that that's his main objective and it still doesn't cure all the ills. I mean, I know he had a, other issues going on at the weekend. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that Taka Nakagami has become like the window to Honda's, um, you know, what well, are kind of window to Honda's problems and the way that the current RCV is just such a flawed concept. I mean, there's no rear grip whatsoever and it does seem the Honda dropped the ball when it comes to electronics. Especially, um, you know, Nakagami was saying it's it became like they mentioned a safety issue after Marquez's crash um, in Germany. Uh, but you know, just to hear the Japanese talking about the situation is quite humbling. But my big question really is, guys, you know, if if they were given concessions, which you would have to admit is something of a you know it's a bit damaging when it comes to the face they have in MotoGP. If Honda and Yamaha were given concessions by the rest of the European brands, then would that really change anything? Uh, no, is the simple answer. It's not really about concessions. What they need is not concessions. What they need is to change the way that they work. The problem is that um, they work, as I said, they're not uh, prepared. They're not uh, prepared to take a risk. They're not prepared to you know really gamble at races um also you know yamaha only have two bikes on the grid franco morbidelli has been 
good in some places, not so good in others. Um, uh, when he's good, then he's providing useful data. But there's only been one or two races when he's been able to provide useful data for Fabio Quartararo. Um, uh, and again, the, 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 the engineers don't seem to listen to the, uh, to the riders. They don't seem to listen to the test riders. Um, the engineers back in Japan are not bringing, then they are very cautious in how long they take to, uh, to bring new material. The Calix chassis that Honda had got taken to Japan. Uh, to Japan first it was put on the dyno it was uh, you know sh- shaken twisted and tested first you know a million ways before it got given to the test riders whereas what European I mean you know we've mentioned this before KTM have got a 3D printer on site where they will produce a part if they if they think that it can help um, stick it on the bike give it a few runs out and if it's better it's better and it, that dramatic difference in speed of response i think is is at the the, the root of things it's interesting that uh, the german website speedweek was reporting that um carmelo espaleta had proposed to introduce concessions for the japanese manufacturers uh, almost with immediate effect i thought that was interesting because it shows that he is pretty scared of either Honda or Yamaha or both potentially leaving the championship and he's trying to make it look like a more attractive and easier road to get back to the top but unsurprisingly it did appear that all the European manufacturers were completely against that idea because you know they had to sort of come up the hard way Um, you know the problem for Honda in a way is that Alex Rins won at uh, Kota um, because that means that it's going to be more difficult uh, longer time until they can get concessions again Um, so, yeah, but I agree with Dave. It's it's not like um, you know uh, that that will uh, that will suddenly turn their fortunes around because you know as we've seen in the past year, even when they have had a lot of time to consider new technical innovations, what they've ended up bringing um, to tests has been minuscule step forwards from the previous machine. Yeah, I mean the. the what Honda, I mean, also Stefan Braudel being in the LCR Honda team has been able to speak a little bit more freely um, uh, about the, some of the things that he's testing than uh, he does when he's with the Repsol Honda, Honda team. Um, Tackett, the electronics upgrade that he bought, which they used at Assen, uh, Takanakagami was saying, you know, it was better, it felt more direct, it felt like you had more connection between the throttle, throttle and the rear wheel. That's really, really important. But, um, you know, Braudel was saying, look, it's not electronic. Electronics. It, it, it's the whole thing. We need more rear grip. We need more confidence in the front. We need electronics. It's about um, uh, the the overall bike. It's not just about um, one thing. It's not about one area. I think the electronics are a big part of that, but the chassis is a massive part as well. Uh, and the Calix chassis is a little bit better in some areas and a little bit worse in in other areas. Overall, yeah, probably a net benefit, but that's not the step that they need. They need a really massive step forward. Yeah, obviously, I think, Dave, just when you were mentioning about the concessions and whether it would help Honda a few minutes ago, the concessions as we know it wouldn't help Honda, but concessions that opened up aero for them instead of being limited to just the two packages a year probably would help them. And I think that would be an interesting step because... We're used to concessions being about engines because that's traditionally been the big benefit that you needed to find. Now you need to figure out a different way to be able to to make something work. Yeah, but I mean, uh, well, yes, it would help, but 
the problem is still that someone back in Japan has to sit down, uh, design a new set of Aero, have ideas about Aero, think about the way that you you integrate Aero into your overall package, um, and then bring it to the racetrack and be willing to try that sort of like every week. I remember, if you remember the first years of uh, Ducati, you know, working with Aero in what fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, they were bringing you know new packages every two three weeks there was always something new on the bike even now what what we're seeing i mean you know ktm have already bought two different versions of that tail wing um because they really want to try something new they you know they, they think they've found something better so, so they want to try it these are the areas they can use aprilia now have uh the wings on the, the the little wings on the swing arm which they sometimes use they've got the little fork wings which they sometimes use these are all of the bits and pieces which are outside of the aero rigs where factories can can change them as often as they like and yet what do we see i mean we saw yamaha putting the tail wings on you know the the uh, the the stegosaurus tail wings which um ducati have had for uh, a long what two a year over a year something like that two years um uh, if yamaha are only just at that point they really need to make a step forward that is the biggest problem well i mean obviously it's not going to be a good thing but if you know the yamaha or honda did eventually decide to pull the plug which is not beyond the realms of possibility and everyone is a little paranoid after suzuki's decision i mean formula uh, honda are going big into formula one again i uh, from what i can gather would it be such a disaster for MotoGP? Uh, I, I think maybe Moto3 suffers a little bit from just being two constructors. I mean, if you just had KTM, Aprilia and Ducati in the, in the Premier class, it would be a bit of a shock, wouldn't it? Yeah, we wouldn't want to have uh, nothing but Aprilians in the MotoGP class. <laughs> you need to make sure that there is some sort of outside Aprilia influence. Um, I don't think anyone wants to see a situation where we don't have, especially manufacturers like Honda, considering the history they have for racing, that you don't want to have a manufacturer like that. But it's also up to them to be competitive. They've been the big dog for 40 years. So now they need to be the one that's fighting for the scraps. And that's just the way racing goes. And right now it's shifted towards the European ethos. And it's up to them to adapt to just being a little bit more agile in how they make their bikes. And what actually is what generates the lap time and the performance from the bikes and they need to adapt to that and we've seen it where honda's thrown the weight behind regulation changes in the past they don't have that weight anymore like they had 20 years ago now you do have it where ducati's had the success aprilia's got the money their piaggio group is one of the biggest in the world and then you've got ktm that are backed by red bull money so there's a lot of european money and power that means that the Japanese have lost that little bit of influence. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that Honda wrote the regulations and the other Japanese manufacturers would just, you know, uh, they would pass them, sort of just nod them through uh, because Honda was seen as the uh, as the senior party within the uh, within the Japanese factories. Uh, Ducati have rather ruined that, and especially since Gigi Dallina got there, they've completely ruined it. Now, I mean... Uh, this was before the pandemic and I also spoke to someone after uh, uh, Assen, someone from a Japanese manufacturer um, saying that 
uh, yeah, the MSMA meetings now are basically just, you know, four factories wanting to do something and uh, Gigi Delinia saying, nope, we're not doing that. Um, we saw it with the change to the schedule, which uh, Ducati refused. Um, even though their riders would actually like the, would actually prefer the change to the schedule, uh, but Ducati perceive that they have an advantage. And, the, you know, the, the, that's fine. It's completely up to them. They have the advantage. They, the, the problem is that they don't see the bigger interest of the sport. They only see the interest of Ducati winning. They're doing everything to ensure that Ducati keep winning, um, which is good for Ducati, but it's bad for, for the sport. And you have to wonder that if, you know, in the long term, is that bad? Uh, is that bad for Ducati as well if there's less interest? Um, I mean, we're seeing it with, with Honda. Um, I don't think Honda are going to leave. I think there's too much... Uh, um, Honda are committed to racing. They're racing for the same reason that, or almost the same reason that Ducati uh, race. It's it's a point of pride. It's what they do. It's how they that how they prove themselves. They have to change. The one thing that I think that might change um, Honda is if Mark Marquez leaves. Obviously, there was a lot of talk about that uh, this week. You might get something similar to what happened when Ducati signed Valentino Rossi. Valentino Rossi failed at Ducati, uh, not through his own fault, but because the bike was just, you know, they, they thought it was okay because Casey Stoner could ride it, but Casey Stoner turned out to be able to do things on a motorcycle that that um, even a, a rider as gifted as Valentino Rossi couldn't. Um, but his failure is what prompted this massive change within uh, Ducati and which have seen them go on to success. Now, Honda are in a very similar situation. Uh, they have Mark Marquez. Um, if they lose him, then maybe that would be enough to actually, you know, pr prompt a proper change. And obviously, Alberto Pooch and Mark Marquez both spoke to us on uh, Sunday morning. Um, uh, about what was going, and Alberto Pooch was asked by the Gunter Wiesinger of Speedweek. Um, so, what happens if uh, you know? Are you are you going to keep Mark against his will? Are you going to keep him to his uh, to his contract? And this is what Alberto Pooch had to say. I have to think yes because we have a contract. But on this question, I have to say that. I think every person is free to do what he wants in life. And Honda is not a company that wants to have people that is not happy being in Honda. So, of course, we have a contract with him, but also Honda respect Mark a lot. And, and I want to think, yes, based on the contract, but I don't have a, I don't have a magic ball. Yeah, really good to get the insight there from Alberto, obviously, a ten minute a ten minute debrief with all the journalists and the only question anyone really wanted to ask him was what's gonna happen for the future with the rider mark and what's gonna happen with Mark. And Adam, it kind of brings us to your big talking point from the Dutch TT. Well, I mean the point with Mark is we were talking about him after the, the Grand Prix in Germany and I think Dave, you were quite damn that this was the end of the, the Marquez Honda kind of era really uh, it's been 10 years of you know um, remarkable domination but also some well i mean how many ha how many fairings do you reckon he scraped in in a decade racing for repsol honda i'm sure the um you know, the painter has been kept in sound employment that's for sure when it comes to uh, tarting up the rcv uh, bodywork but 
yeah, it, it, it does seem, I mean, Pudge saying that, you know, Honda also don't want to ride it. It doesn't want to be with Honda. Um, you know, is a I wouldn't say as a get out clause for Mark, but then clearly he has to make some sort of decision on whether he wants to develop uh, or he wants to jump on a motorcycle like his brother that potentially has the power to win races again. Uh, he's going to be plus 30, I, I think, next year. Is he 29 at the moment? Yep. He's, so he, he's, in, he's 30 this year. Yeah. So he's heading into his fourth decade next season. Uh, how long does he want to wait around? I mean, he could finish the Honda story, and I don't think anyone would blame him for that. And he's incredibly well paid, let's not forget. But, you know, there is a, another generation coming through. And, you know, after the kind of to and fro in around Pedro Acosta, we sort of saw the first statement across the Aston weekend that he's made his mind up. He wants to head towards MotoGP for next year. And um, it, it's just remarkable sort of reading the body language of ktm management on on tv screens it almost seems like uh if pedro wins then it reaffirms the moves they might make to wedge him into MotoGP somehow um if he underperforms then also it's a case against you know maybe you need another year in the class at the age he currently is below 20 you just wonder if he's on a MotoGP bike next year and i think if you frame it against the likes of ralph fernandez for example how much of how much time is a manufacturer going to give a young rider to be able to show his chops straight away i think there's a real need to perform to show some potential a rider like um augusto fernandez is, is only one of two riders in the premier class to have scored points in every single round he's already breached the top five when riders around him are crashing he's still managing to you know post points and get near the top 10 I think, you know, in terms of rookie campaigns, it's just going pretty well for for the reigning Moto2 world champion. So when Acosta comes in, undoubtedly on, on a good package and a good resource around him, you know, is he going to have to quickly show something of the same ilk? Um, how long will KTM give him? Let's not forget that factories like this are investing, you know, say 10 to 15 million euros a year with everything involved with the contracts, the resources, the development, everything. Uh, this is why I think KTM wanted to make a complete sea change at the end of 2022 with the Tech 3 squad and, and resetting it with gas gas colors. Uh, if Acosta comes in, I just wonder, you know, how much time are you going to get? I mean, if he outgrows Moto2, fine, move on. Um, if he's, he's reigning world champion, maybe he doesn't want to sit around for another year and just take race results and take win bonuses. But I think there's also a lot to be said for the timing of moves in motorsport and sport generally. Uh, and it, it would be more beneficial maybe for Acosta just to wait one more year until, uh, you know, uh, maybe more saddles open up and he has even more bargaining power. But, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens now because it's five weeks and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of phone calls and conversations and, and paper being pushed across tables. The one thing for, for Acosta is, like, I know from my time working in Junior GP, CEV as it was when Acosta was coming through, he had been earmarked as a superstar from such an early age. And the comparison to someone like Augusto or Raul is that they showed an awful lot of talent at different times, but there was a reason why Augusto had to go through European Junior Cup stock classes and then go into Moto2 for a long time. He was a good rider, but he wasn't that next generational super talent that there's only very few of. And he's turned himself into a very good Moto2 rider, thoroughly deserves his world championship last year. And he's done a good job on the gas gas this year. So fair play to, to Augusto. Raul, on the other hand, is a rider that I remember like a few years ago, you always mentioned him in Moto3 is 
the one lap specialist. He probably was a bit too big for a Moto3 bike, did well on a Moto2 bike, and then went on to a MotoGP bike. And it's been a tumultuous couple of years for him because he went on to a bike he didn't want to be on, and then there was all sorts of strife. Whereas for Acosta, he's the rider that's in demand. He's the rider that can dictate an awful lot of terms. So it's a slightly different situation for him. And you're also going to be more patient with a rider that you know has that superstar quality or potential rather than either the Fernandez's that look like they could be really good, but are they that rider that you can really hang your hat on like a Mark Marquez for 10 years at Honda? And I think that that's where Acosta will end up with a little bit more chips at the table than either of the other riders, especially for someone like Augusto last year whenever he, he stepped up. But you could easily have it where it's not Augusto that makes way, it's Paul that makes way. And then suddenly the narrative is very different because you're looking at someone like Paul that's been in the Premier class for 10 years, obviously a former world champion in the Moto2 class, but a rider that you know what you're going to get from Paul, which is good performances, but there's a reason he hasn't won a Grand Prix. Whereas if you were to replace him with someone like Acosta, you're then bringing through a rider from CEV into Moto3, Moto2, MotoGP, it makes sense to do it that way. And I think it's it always comes down to the decision that they make for who you replace with a rider like that. I wouldn't have any problem if KTM got rid of any of their riders to put a cost on the bike, to be honest. Uh, I mean, the the question for me, and this is a question for Neil, because I think Neil knows this much better than than any of us. Um, it, it looks like Acosta is a generational rider, the kind of Mark Marquez-style rider, someone who is just so much better than everyone else. That's what he showed in uh, in Moto3. That's what he's, uh, he, he's certainly showing in, in Moto2 to an extent. Um, is there anyone else coming through because if there is someone else coming through then yes you have to rush to sign uh, a costa um but is there someone else who who could be that level of talent i don't think so um no uh, there's no one that stands out there's obviously lots of very exciting prospects but no one that's done what he's done no one has stepped up to Moto3 and won the championship at the first attempt. You look at the difficulties that the Moto2 rookies are having this year. I mean, you would say Sergio Garcia is doing a good job and he scored one top six in his first eight races. You think Acosta was topping preseason tests as a rookie in Moto2 in 2022. Um, one it was on pole position in what, his sixth race at Le Mans, won his seventh race, youngest ever intermediate class victor um, and now he's putting together a run of results where KTM just can't ignore him anymore um, you know he scored six podiums in the first eight races um, he's won four of them um, even on a bad day at Aston he was able to just about get on the podium and he had no reference from the previous year he missed Aston in 2022 because he was injured he was still among the fastest guys there all weekend um, you know if a rider feels that he has learned everything he can in a certain class then I think um you know, when he doesn't, he, he no longer wants to be there, then it's a very dangerous situation to try and keep him there against his will. Um, and, you know, speaking to people around Acosta, uh, I think it was at Jerez, it was pretty clear that he, he had no interest in staying in Moto2. No one really involved in the IO team expected him to stay in Moto2 for another year. And um, I think it got to a point where KTM just thought, you know what, we, we can't let this guy go. Um, and... Yeah, it looks like it's going to be at the uh, at the expense of one of the gas gas guys currently, but it's a brutal world and you would have to say it's probably justified. Just about that, Neil, what I find really interesting about Acosta is riders spend so long on Moto3 machinery because they'll do three years in junior GP 
from when they're 14, 15, 16 in the past, and then they move on to a Moto3 World Championship bike and they'll do two or three years on that. So they could easily end up with five or six years on Moto3 machinery. And so much of what you then know about how to ride bikes is ingrained in you from those bikes that to then be able to make the transition to especially the Triumph Moto2 bike and make it quickly, that's really what shows how special Acosta is because he can clearly jump on any bike and figure it out pretty quickly. When you look at some of the other rookies, I think Guevara is a good example of it because he's on, when he was coming through in CEV, was arguably just as impressive as Acosta. But his transition onto a Moto2 bike is taking him a lot longer to figure out how you can adapt your style to that machinery. Adam, you wanted to, to jump in. Um, on that note, Steve, don't discount the the work that Akiyayo has done with Acosta since he's come into uh, MotoGP or the World Championship, you know, and uh, of course, Aki has a proven track record when it comes to that. I think that's been a, a big um, contributing factor to how, you know, Acosta's participated. But um, there was a rider in motocross, Ryan Hughes, who had a saying um, that riders are a little bit like tear-offs on um, goggles. You know, you just if one's got a problem, you just tear it away and then there's another, you know, clean layer to go. And I think we're forgetting that the guys in MotoGP are essentially investments. Um, Augusto Fernandez is somebody that, as I mentioned earlier, KTM Group decided to invest in. And if you're going to guide this guy and he's going to make progress over the course of one season, uh, he can still finish 10th on his first MotoGP race around Assen where he was having struggles all weekend, still said he didn't feel that good in the race but brought the bike home, you know, compared to some of the other riders who are far more experienced. Then to lose that is quite a big decision. I mean, I agree with Neil. I think uh, Costa, if he, if he bangs his fist on the table and says, sort me out or I'm going somewhere, um, you know, you have to make it happen. And KTM have known that if Acosta was continuing on his current ascendancy, then he was going to put them in that position. So it's a, it's, it's a tricky situation. You don't want to be riding a Japanese bike, as we said at the moment in MotoGP. Um, and it's just a case of where Acosta may find his best opportunity uh, bearing in mind that he also wants to earn money it's um you know it's when you move into the premier class as we saw ralph Fernandez, the rider has to feel that he's being appreciated or being remunerated to the correct level that he wants fernandez as well um raul that is you know it's worth pointing out then interview i did with sam lowes in harath he said that acosta does things differently on a motor two bike but then you know he's he also referenced ralph Fernandez in that same bracket by saying he was doing some pretty special stuff as well in Moto2. And, uh, you know, he was staggering in his, his debut season, but it hasn't gone so well for him on the bigger bike. I think there's a whole load more to get your head around in MotoGP, not just in terms of the technical side with electronics, the extra um, technicians and everything else around you, but also just different pressure, even from goons like us asking you questions every weekend. Um, there's quite a bit to take on board. Yeah. Uh Raul doesn't strike me as the most intelligent rider ever. Uh, Acosta does strike me as pretty intelligent. And Raul's attitude has been pretty terrible in the past. I think Acosta's application can't be questioned. Yeah, um, the other thing is, the biggest thing is that, uh, you know, when you are an extremely successful rider in the lower classes and then you reach MotoGP and everyone is absolutely amazing um it gets really difficult when you're used to being you know sort of fighting for the podium every week we see this in lots and lots of different classes people are used to fighting for the podium every week and then they come in and all of a sudden you know they're like they're happy when they get to 13th or 14th that is it requires a completely different mindset a completely different approach and as neil says um that takes intelligence both intellectual and emotional 
I think you're right, Dave. I mean, intelligence is obviously a massive, uh, you know, um, facet that a rider needs. But also by that token, Neil, I don't think Massimo Rivola or the upper manager management of Aprilia are lacking intelligence and they decided to make a substantial investment in Fernandez. You know, how long are they prepared to give him? You know, is his MotoGP career going to be over before he's 24 years old and he's, you know, dumped somewhere like Superbike or to, to Moto2? Uh, you know, I think it's it's just um, a little bit of a. I think there are enough cautionary tales around to jump in in MotoGP at a ridiculously early age. But then again, you could say Acosta is just hammering everything in Moto Two. I think it's one of those situations where it just comes down to the individual rider, and that's where you know Neil's point about what you have from from Acosta, the proven pedigree over the last few years is quite an interesting one but let's move ourselves on to our winners and losers from round eight of moto gp dave i'm going to come to you first you're the home hero so you get the honors this week who's your big winner from the weekend um uh, my big winner is uh, mr peko banyaya because he did it again basically you know like he he had a terrible race on uh, saturday and only finished second and then he had a fantastic race on sunday and won um he improved over the weekend he really built his uh, his championship the 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 riders behind him the riders who are chasing him in the championship keep on having these, you know, good weeks and bad weeks. Uh, they keep on swapping around. He really strengthens it, has strengthened his hand and he's just looking, uh, mind you, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to, um, immediately add a, uh, a proviso on it, a caveat. Um, uh, he is looking completely unstoppable in the championship, but then we said that after the Saxon ring in 2022 about Fabio Quattararo. I like the fact that we've already established earlier in the weekend that, uh, from Saturday to Sunday that your ability to make predictions was terrible. So, uh, now you've just put <laughs> the I, curse I, I, on as well. I, I don't think this is a new thing. I think I might have form for this. Yeah, you've plenty of form for that. Adam, what about you? Who's your big winner? Uh, a nod to the VR46 team. They seem to be doing everything you'd want from a satellite setup in terms of developing their riders. Uh, I mean, Bezeki is stronger than this year than I thought he ever would be. Uh, you know, I think Jack Appleyard asked um, Pablo Nieto about the state of their equipment for next year. There was no kind of confirmation on that, whether the likes of Bezeki would be riding sort of the latest spec uh, Desmos Adichie. That wasn't confirmed. Uh, there was some talk, you know, a while ago, would they actually run Yamahas? Valentino Rossi, of course, signed up to be a Yamaha ambassador if there was two extra bikes. Could that be the future of the team? It's looking unlikely, but who knows? But um, I'm going to say for my winner, I'll go for Jake Dixon. But really why I'm naming him is because it follows with a question. Um, I thought it was kind of cool to see. I mean, he was fast from the off, right from sort of P, uh, FP1 on Friday. So, I mean, he was clearly in contention. And as we spoke about before we started recording, um, you know, he's edging up into championship contention. But he was the winner. And, you know, very emotional post-race reaction as well. But I just wonder if, you know, he, is he really kind of the bright future for British bike racing? Um, I just question whether he really has talking about rider intelligence or the chops to handle all the politics that go around being a MotoGP rider. Is he kind of the best that the UK has? I um, I don't know. It's something it's something mean makes me unconvinced um i thought it was a, a great win fair play to him it's taken him a long enough time to get to it um you know from doing ridiculous things like falling off on the warm-up lap in cotter uh yeah i mean is 
to use a tennis sort of simile, is um, is Jake Dixon a Tim Henman or is he more of an Andy Murray? Who knows? Well, he's already won one of the big ones, so he's clearly more Andy Murray than Tim Henman. But I, I find it interesting for Dixon that he's gone through the, the superbike route, but specifically the BSB route, and took, him, took himself out of that to go to Moto2. He's had a tough few years, and he's gradually been able to build himself in the last couple of years into being a, a regular front runner. So he's been able to show he's very competitive in that class. Whether or not that would transition into MotoGP is a different story, but his passport would. You've got BT Sport transitioning into TNT Sport, so it's always going to be important to have a British rider on the grid. Who else stands out? You're obviously not going to have Sam Lowe step back up to the MotoGP class. Rory Skinner hasn't done an awful lot since jumping onto the Grand Prix bike. And even in BSB, Rory wasn't that impressive on the Kawasaki. He was outperformed by Lee Jackson. So is Rory that guy you can pin your hopes on? Scott Ogden's shown some flashes. Jake's the, Jake's the best of the bunch right now if you're looking for a British rider to actually be able to make a transition. But if he goes up to MotoGP, is he going to be competitive? Probably not because he's not going to be on the right bike. And then you're in a situation of, is that where you need to be? And uh, like what we were talking about with Raul, Augusto, whoever you want to look at, those riders stepping up, unless you're able to pull the trees up straight off the bat, you can easily be replaced because at the end of the day, if you're finishing 10th, 11th, 12th, there'd be a bit of an outcry if you're replaced, but not for that long. Neil, what about you? Who is your big winner? Uh, Takanakagami, Steve, because he finished 8th uh, on an absolute pig of a bike and uh, had he not got a long like, penalty for exceeding track limits he would have been sixth which I think would be uh, a pretty remarkable performance all things considered and um, you know very interesting to look at the two different approaches Nakagami on the one hand Mark on the other Mark is obviously always on the limit trying to get the very best out of the bike trying to override the bike and get results and Nakagami um, knows when that needs to be done and, and recently hasn't been willing to do it and you know um, with, with, with good reason Um you know, he sort of tootled around uh, the Saxon ring and picked up one point. Um, obviously, that was a disastrous weekend, but um, could find a little bit more performance here. And um, I think that's a, a remarkable result, all things considered. Um, you know, considering everything we've mentioned about Honda on this show already. Yeah, and uh, we did actually get that in from Stefan, one of our patrons. So check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. And Stefan said that his rider of the week was... Takanakagami for just not crashing on the Honda was enough of an achievement <laughs> to get that honour. But uh, Neil, we came to you last for winners, so we'll come to you first for your losers from the weekend. Uh, yes, so my loser was uh, Paul Espargaro. Um We've just spoken about Pedro Acosta and how it looks as though he's moving up to MotoGP. Um, reading between the lines, it did sound as though that would be at the expense of Paul Espargaro. Um I mean, just horrible really uh, luck and misfortune for Paul um, you know the, it was great to see him back in Assen during the weekend he made a surprise appearance on the Friday evening um, spoke to the journalists on Saturday um, you know making good recovery um, but really unless he starts performing brilliantly at um, Silverstone Red Bull Ring Mizano then you would have to say that his place in MotoGP is, uh, is under serious threat and it's, it's unfortunate you know, the, the, the timing is, is cruel because he hasn't had a chance to, pr to prove himself this year. But he just finds himself kind of in the, yeah, wrong place at the wrong time in a certain way. 
He did say uh, on Saturday he has a contract for two years, um, he, but he wasn't really thinking about it. But um, yeah, he also expressed a lot of gratitude to KTM for, and Gascas for everything that they'd done to him. So he does feel a lot of loyalty for uh, uh, to the factory, but does he feel enough loyalty to step aside to make way for, um, for Pedro Acosta? We'll see. Yeah, but also there's the fact that would they want to be repeating mistakes because they decided to change direction completely from having two rookies in the class? And you're going to field a team next year of Augusto Fernandez who has just one season and Acosta coming up who's a, the rawest of rookies. I think it's a big ask. And, uh, you know, KTM had their fingers burnt in, in the past. Okay, very different characters and attitudes, but I think you'd benefit more from having a figure like Paul in the garage next to Augusto or to uh, Pedro just to sort of show the way and lead by example as much as anything. Paul is not going to win a championship, though, and Pedro might. But he doesn't need to win a championship. He just needs to show Acosta how you conduct yourself in, in the, the confines of a factory team, how you build a team and group around you, how you approach sessions. There's, there's a hell of a lot there, I think, you know, can be gleaned on Acosta's side of the pit box just by watching the experience of somebody like Aspargaro. And that's why KTM value him so highly as well. So, Adam, you're giving up on Acosta, is what you're saying? I've got no, no idea. I mean, Dave, you might know a little bit more about this when it comes to the ruling, but could they put a fifth bike in? Uh, they can't put a bit of a, a fifth bike in. I did uh, go and speak to someone in Urta about this, and they said um, there are two free grid slots at the moment. Those grid slots are being held open for a proper new factory and a ktm rc16 with husqvarna stickers on it is not a proper new factory uh, and such an entry would be refused uh, the people who decide by the way are urta and dorna together um and unless dorna overrules urta by saying it's all right we'll pay them we'll, we'll cover the costs of this um uh, then you know i think urta would refuse it uh, and you know so you, which new factory could come in none for 2024 because it, we would already know about it we would have already heard about, you know, a BMW or a Triumph MotoGP bike circulating somewhere, being tested somewhere. Um, they would actually, they would right now already be having to start building the bikes, getting them ready for the Misano test and the Valencia test at the end of the year. So, yeah, there, there are 22 seats on the grid in 2024. Uh, and now that I've said that definitively, then <laughs> the, the rules are definitely going to be bent and they're going to find a way. There's two grid spots, then you know make a use of it isn't it just for one year because that solves the situation i'm sure dorna would want a, a star like acosta in the premier class as well yeah but they don't want to pay the money the point is that they uh um those two grid slots are there uh, um if an independent team comes in then dorna have to pay the what is it two and a half three million a year in terms of uh, a team subsidy which they give um uh, per rider uh, i mean uh, you could have one uh, perhaps a one rider independent team come in but uh, again Dorna would have to fund just about the whole thing uh, unless Red Bull or someone had all of the money. It's it, in the end, it all comes down to money. You know, any everything is possible uh, given sufficient quantities of money. So, if uh, Elon Musk wants to, uh, uh, to sponsor a MotoGP team, then anything is possible. Well, in fairness, Dave, given that Musk is looking to have his cage fight, you're going to have your press-up contest with Miguel Alvaro <laughs> pretty soon. I think we could probably get enough interest in that to fund a single bike entry for next year. Adam, let's come to you. Who's your loser from the weekend? 
Uh, same as it was in Germany, Steve, not through a lack of underperformance, but more just circumstance, Brad Binder. Uh, yeah, just to repeat that kind of a mistake on the last lap of the main race when he fought so hard uh, to keep that podium place. More than anything, like I said, when you know, in, in the wake of the German GP, it's just because it's nudging Binder away from being the sole guy who can really threaten the Ducatis um, and the Italians. I mean, Jorge Martin, you could say, lost potentially some ground in Holland, but um, yeah, just those extra points clipped away from Binder's total. Uh, yeah, a real shame. I really hope he can, you know, get some better results to put himself in position because I think we need a rider of his sort of caliber and his character to, you know, um, you know, just mix things up a bit. Yeah, I think uh, that's fair enough. I think for me, my big loser of the weekend was myself because Neil has now extended his lead over me in the MotoGP fantasy as he celebrates oh. on top of the podium there on <laughs> uh, on our YouTube channel. But um, anyone looking to get involved in that, check out MotoGP fantasy and then look for the Paddock Mass Podcast League. And uh, we've all put in varying levels of effort throughout the course of this season. No, sorry, Steve, the league has been closed. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> there was a technical problem. Um, I think maybe it's something to do with the fact that I have my team, how it crashed and burned so quickly. And uh, yeah, now it's all gone tits up. So apologies, guys. Thanks for playing. Uh, we'll be back next year. Well, I have to say it's been very competitive for some of the other players on uh, the Paddock Pass Podcast League. And I'm only interested in beating Neil. And as it is, I've lost a bit of ground in the last three rounds. Having Jorge Martin on, on your squad really made a difference for you, Neil. But when we get back at Silverstone, there's a chance for everything to turn around. So I'm looking forward to that and uh, taking the duel into the second half of the season. David, what about you? Who was your big loser from the weekend? Uh, well, I mean, we've talked about them extensively this uh, the in the show, and that's Honda. Honda are my big uh, big loser. Just uh, well, I mean, I don't have to go uh, go over it all again. You know, they're on the verge of losing the the most you know the most talented rider who's ever uh, thrown a a leg over a bike um the, the the rider who's bought them six championships uh, they are finding that inventing new ways every single week to uh, physically injure and harm their riders it's just really honda are having a really 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 bad time and i think this might have been the absolute bottom yeah, I think, uh, well, we'll wait and see. The the hole seems to constantly get deeper for Honda. So when we come back after the summer break, we'll see how they fare. David, what about you for the summer break? What's the plan? Um, uh, ride my boat, about motorbike, ride my bicycle, um, spend some time with my uh, lovely wife. And um, that's, that, that's pretty much it until I go over to the UK, see my mum and uh, go to Silverstone. Lovely stuff. Adam, obviously there is no summer break for on track off-road. It's non-stop all the way. But what about the five weeks without MotoGP? Uh, the second Indonesian Grand Prix next weekend for MHGP, Steve. Um, wanna, what else? Um, I'm actually going to go to the Goodwood Festival Speed. Um, I've been given a, a, G, a Monster SP by Ducati UK, so I'm going to be riding that around for a week. Um, yeah, in the UK for about a month. So I'll be there because I think Goodwood um, has the biggest ever sort of collection of MotoGP um, riders and teams and bikes. So going to go and look at that for the first time. Usually don't get a, a moment to check it out because it's right. The same reason I've never been to the TT because of the fixture clash and the congestion through sort of May, June and July. 
Um, but that's it. And now, you know, other than that, we've got some pretty good uh, podcast shows lined up for the summer break. So um, I hope people will enjoy keeping to li- well, keep on listening to our content. Yeah, an excellent plug there. And obviously, the Goodwood Festival is the thirteenth to the sixteenth of July, and definitely well worth going to. There's always great bikes, cars, riders, drivers. And uh, everyone's always just keen to just talk racing at it. So it's a shame that it's on the same weekend as the Imola World Superbike Round. So I won't be heading over to it this year, but definitely something for everyone to look at. And in terms of the content as well, obviously, this week is the UK Round the World SBK. So myself and Gordo will be recording a pod for next week. And then we'll just have lots of additional content all the way through the next couple of weeks. Neil, your holiday will start as soon as you file your last piece to deadline. And uh, what's the plan? Yeah, sticking around Amsterdam, Steve, for uh, the next week, and then just back to back to Barcelona. I mean, the the three week break after Le Mans, I didn't really spend any time at home. Um, I was sort of travelling around, did a little cycle trip. So I think this July is just about being based in being based at home. So yeah, it's going to be very very quiet. Um, might sneak back to Northern Ireland before Silverstone, but yeah, pretty chilled. David, obviously, you've always said Neil needs to go to Rotterdam, not to Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, but he did. I mean, to be fair, he did go to Utrecht before um, uh, uh, before Aston, so I'm prepared to give him a pass. Yeah, well, we'll give him a pass just because he's going to be on his holidays for a few weeks and we won't have to deal with him. But uh, obviously, if you want to deal with us over the course of the next five weeks, check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. We've got lots of content on that. Obviously, over a Grand Prix weekend, we have the paddock note show, so around about a 20, 25 minute show at the end of each day where we come straight from the rider debriefs to get everyone as much news and insight as possible each day. So check out that on Patreon. We also have free trials available for one week, and uh, then you're able to use that to then subscribe in the future if you like what you hear. So have a check on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. As usual, a big thank you to Renthal Street for supporting us on the Paddock Pass Podcast. And until next week, when it's myself and Gordo from Donington Park World Superbikes, It's a big thank you from all of us on the team for listening to today's show.